kids can head out to kids' class, and all of you can have a seat. I want to say a real quick thank you to Hannah and Betsy, um, who stepped in to lead worship today. Uh, Missy was supposed to, but they had a family emergency, uh, so we want to be praying for their family um, before, you know, as they were coming in today. So, um, so thanks for jumping in and, and leading us in, in music. Um, it is truly a joy when I can get a phone call on Sunday morning saying that someone with a key role at church um, isn't going to be there, and I turn around and I don't have to do it. <laughs> That's a great thing. Um, and so it's just a joy uh, to be led. It's a joy to have uh, such gifted folks leading music here. A.D. 30, April 5th. Is that a date that matters to any of you? A.D. 30, April 5th, or maybe this date, A.D. 33, April 2nd. Those are the two dates that scholars think is the possibility for the arrest followed by the murder of Jesus our Lord. There's a lot of dates that we know as a culture but most of us don't even think about those dates. And it's not known exactly which one of those two dates it lands on, but we know that there was a date. There was a time that the events that we read about at the end of John happened. I share that right now because I think there are times when we read through the Bible and it, it feels so distant from where we are today, or we may even know the stories well enough that what ends up happening is that we lose sight of the fact that these are descriptions of things that actually took place. It is not some mythology. It is not some creative writing assignment, right? It is not something that we think may have happened, but that the the events of the Bible, in particular, though I would say all of them, the events around the arrest, trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ were moments that should be etched in time. And, and I would say more so than any other single date that we might remember as a society and culture. Right? These dates should matter more than 9-11. These dates should matter more than the start or the end of World War II, right? These dates should matter more than any of the dates we can think of because on these dates, one of them, <laughs> most likely, our Lord and Savior was arrested, tried, and crucified. I'll let you decide if you care at all about which one of those dates really is what it is, but those are the dates scholars basically agree on, one of those two dates. What we do know is that when Jesus was arrested, it was sometime in the evening, probably between 12 p.m. and midnight. And we know what we'll read today is that from that moment, that late at night moment, Jesus was led off and trials began in the middle of the night. 
Well, there's significance in that. Right? People do at night what they won't do during the day. We have thoughts that we will have at night that we would never entertain in the day. For there is something that happens in the night, in the darkness, that causes us to think that we can hide. When in reality, there is no such thing. And if you were at community group this week, we actually learned that, that the darkness is like day to the Lord. That's a big encouragement to us when in the dark we may find ourselves afraid, we may find ourselves worried or fearful, whatever season that we're in where life is hard, that the darkness is just like the day to him. So as he comfort, comforts us, he comes to us in the darkness, and it is as if light was there. Church, we are entering a season, and the beautiful thing about this season is, is that uh, Scott and I have orchestrated um, our sermon series just right so that we are going to read about the actual death of Jesus the week before Easter. And we will be preaching straight out of the book of John in our sermon series on Easter morning when we talk about the other side, the, the new life, the resurrection. Today we begin talking about the trial of Jesus, if you could even call it a trial. By any modern standards of fairness or justice at any point in history, it's difficult to call what happened to Jesus over that course of about 12 hours a trial because there was nothing just about it. And so today we're going to be in John chapter 18. I'd invite you to turn there. Last week, Scott brought us through verses 1 through 11, which was the actual arrest of Jesus in the garden. And I will just point out one of the things we saw there is that despite the fact that everybody else thinks they're in control, none of them are. The only one in that entire mix who's in control is Jesus. And we see that carry in today's passage, I think, as well. So today we're in Ma or John 18, starting in verse 12, and the scriptures say this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now I will tell you, there is a temptation I had in this sermon to take this sermon all the way back to John chapter 11, verse 47 through 53, which is where you read Caiaphas proclaim and decide that it would be better for one man to die than for the nation to perish. I had a temptation to go there and simply spend this entire sermon time in the final words of verse 14. What we see in the ESV, that it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient, well the word is in other places better, that one man should die 
for the people. It is a temptation to the preacher to spend all his time in the one part of this that I could spend hours on. Rather than the other parts, which is actually a little boring. I do need to go back, though, to John chapter 11 real quick. So I'd invite you to turn back there because we do need to see where this is coming from in order to see why John brings this up here. Right? He's telling a story, a true story, and he's, he's telling it for a point. He's trying to convince and to show and to teach. So you've got to ask the question, why in the middle of the arrest and all this does Jesus bring up what had been said all the way back in John chapter 11, that it would be better for one man to die rather than for the nation to perish? So, go into chapter 11, verse 47. It says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53, you need to hear this, because this brings us all the way forward. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, John chapter 11, these verses I just read, takes place right after the raising of Lazarus. And you can look back at that and picture him. And Jesus has just raised someone from the dead in front of countless witnesses, hundreds of people. And suddenly the Jewish leaders realize that this man is not one to be trifled with. Like they suddenly realize that like this this guy that everyone's talking about is the real deal. And what it means for them is the loss of everything. If Jesus can raise someone from the dead, then he's going to create such a ruckus and such a stir that they, the Jewish leaders of that day, are going to lose their position. Because why would you listen to them if you could listen to the source? Right, and they begin to realize this is going to cause a problem with Rome, the nation that ran things. And they realize, man, if Jesus makes such a stir, he's going to cause a commotion. The soldiers are going to get involved. We're going to get removed because we can't keep our people in check. And so it's all the way back here in John 11 that they decide there's only one option for Jesus, and that is death. And they spend all their time after that trying to figure out how to make it happen. Now, I will just tell you, two years ago in May, I preached the sermon on this passage. I will leave it to you to go back to it if you don't remember it or if you want to. Um, if I understand technology right, it will appear on Facebook at 11.15 today in a link. So you can go back and listen to that. Because that's where I actually want to leave this bit. And, and like I said, the temptation of a preacher to move away from this one phrase that it is better for one man to die for than the nation should perish, right? This preaches really, really well. 
And this is what a lot of us, we, we need to hear this. We need to be reminded that it is actually true that it is better that Jesus would die than that we all would. And if you don't know that message, go back and listen to that. Come read through these scriptures, hear them, listen to them. But we need to move forward because that's not what John is doing here. And we want to look at the passage where John is today. And what John is doing is he's setting the stage. He's reminding us all the way back that what Jesus is walking into is a travesty of justice. The very people who have been seeking to kill him for all this time, they're the ones who are going to be sitting in judgment. They're the ones who are going to be sitting in the judgment seat. John is reminding us right here that Jesus is not walking into a fair trial. He's walking into a situation that has already been decided. And there's only one outcome. They've been seeking it for years. And they finally have the opportunity to kill Jesus. We look at the arrest from last week, like I already mentioned. And what we see is that Jesus is in charge. And nothing has changed. Right, John is saying, look, they, they've been plotting this all this time. They think they're in control. They think they're doing this. But the reality is that Jesus is still in charge. Look with me at verse 12. Just see the, the brazenness, I think, here. So the band of soldiers and their captain... And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Okay, now just pause there and just think about this for a minute. Right, Jesus, who has done nothing violent, my, except the, the turning of the tables, right? Jesus has not hurt anyone. He has not attacked anyone. He has not done anything physical against anyone. Nobody is dead because of Jesus. And it takes an entire band of soldiers to show up in order to arrest him, bind him, and lead him off. There is no one who can arrest Jesus, bind him, and lead him anywhere without him. In fact, he's the one who has bound them and arrested them and is leading them to what's to come. He is the one in charge here. They think they are. Which is a good note for all of us in our lives. How often do we think that we are in charge, that we are in control, that we are moving forward? When in reality, we worship, we give our lives to a sovereign Lord who leads us, right? Who, who drives our lives forward. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that, bear, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Right, scripture tells us that when Jesus would be arrested, when the Messiah would be arrested, he would go forth willingly. Without a fight, without an argument, he would go forth, and that he, in fact, wouldn't even defend himself. So he's brought in our verses today before Annas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the current high priest of the nation of Israel. Now, Annas, too, was also a high priest. 
The high priestly office was an office for life. When you became the high priest, you were a priest forever until you died. The fact that he is no longer serving as high priest is actually fairly stunning. One, it means he retired for health reasons. Right, that's one option. That he just couldn't keep up the pace, and so he passes off the role. The other more likely option is that the Romans removed him. Right, they came to him and they said, look, you're not keeping control, you're not doing what we want you to do, and so they take him out and they put somebody else in, his son-in-law, because it has to remain in the family. But the thing is, is the Jews would never see Caiaphas as the high priest if there was an illegitimate takeover from the previous one. Jesus is led to Annas. Why? Because he's still in charge. Because he's running things. But it was Caiaphas who brought the wisdom and the prophecy that one man should die for the sake of all the others. Jesus is brought before the priest and eventually before the rest of the Sanhedrin. And at this point, the reality is, is, is John is telling us that they think they've won. They think that they have Jesus right where they want him. They've made their plans, they've laid their traps, and now they think they are winning. But they really have no idea what's going on. This reminds me of a key story in Israel's history in the book of Genesis. I hope you've read the story of Joseph before. It's key and central in the book of Genesis. It also is a foreshadowing and a foretelling of basically everything that will happen moving forward. In many ways, Joseph is sort of the first Jesus, and Jesus is the true and better Joseph, <laughs> okay? Joseph, who is led into a trap by his brothers, sold into slavery, is his, his existence still, his identity still being alive, is lied to his father. Joseph is carted off to Egypt, where he's sold into, into slavery there, and, and he becomes a servant. He ends up in jail. He eventually gets out, and he begins to take over the entire nation with one wise choice after another. Joseph is made number two in the land of Egypt. He's given control over everything. He is the savior of the people. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph, jo or Joseph is reunited with his father and his brothers, and there's much rejoicing and tears and crying, and everything is great until his father dies. And suddenly his brothers worry, hey, our dad is dead now. Joseph might still be harboring anger towards us. He's going to kill us now that dad is dead. And so they go to him and they beg for mercy, and he looks at him and he says, look, it's okay. I forgive you. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And in that single moment, that single phrase out of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we see how God works in all of history. God takes the evil things that people do and he does beautiful, great things with them. God takes our sin, our troubles, our problems, our rebellion, and out of them, he rescues us and calls us to be new people by no work of our own. What we mean in evil, God turns to good. And that's exactly what he's doing in the story we're reading today. 
They are arresting him for evil, but he is doing good. God is using their treachery, their scheming, their plotting, their injustice to save all of God's people the same way that he did so with Joseph to rescue his people. God uses their schemes and their plans and their treachery. And that's a beautiful thing. But how bad were their crimes? What, what is the magnitude of what they are doing here? I mean, obviously, and most of us have thought about this before, they are in the process of killing the creator of the universe. That is terrible. Okay, and, and you really can't magnify anything beyond that. It could be kind of left there, but, but it shouldn't be. Because their crimes are great. And John is making that point in verse 14. Now, some of you may notice that in John chapter 11, it was the, the phrasing of this, par- of this passage was that it was better for one man to die. Here in John chapter 18, it says, and it uses the word expedient. Now, that's an interesting note that I just want to make. The, the writers of the ESV, the translators of the ESV, took the same Greek word in both cases and they translated it differently in two different places. We don't always do that, especially when it's a quote. In fact, it's really rare to do when it's a quote out of another place because then it just looks like it's not lining up. In Greek, it's the same word, just so you know. The original manuscripts have the same word. So why do the writers, the translators of the ESV, do they take that and they use the word expedient here? It's because they're sermonizing a little bit in their translation. They're pointing out to you and I, the the reader, who probably don't have access to all kinds of commentaries and all kinds of things, what's going on here. He's getting to the heart and the motives of these people. They're getting to to what they're doing and why they're doing it. And expedient, and you just pause and think about that word as you read it in the Bible. I paused on it every time I read it this week. It is expedient that one man should die for others. What? It is expedient? At no point should that phrasing ever truly be used. It should never be expedient to take someone's life. It should never be expedient, right, to to end the existence of someone. But what are they doing? It's the exact thing they are doing. They are inexpedience, bringing a man to death unjustly. So while we should still be thinking about it being a better for, and that makes just as much sense to be upset about, right? Because it also should never be better that we kill one person in exchange for another. This isn't justice, and it's certainly not pro-life. What's happening here is that there is a pointing out of the wrong that they are in in all of this. That one should never describe the taking of lives, one's life as expedient or as better. No government should ever sacrifice any of its people for the better of any of its other people. On the other hand, it is often better that one would give one's life for others. Right? Jesus tells us that the essence of friendship is to sacrifice oneself for a friend. 
And whether we think about military service or we think about the police or firefighters or just the hero who steps in and gives his life in a tragic situation, we know that it is better to give one's life for others. And yet it is not better to take one's life for others. This is the essence of justice. We should recognize the difference here, especially as we think about Jesus, who is in this very moment, right? What they're meaning for evil, they are intending to take his life. What is Jesus doing at the same time? He is giving his life. See, they're taking it. That is an evil act. He's giving it. That is a beautiful act. In the same moment, what they mean for evil, God means for good. And they're so interested in making this as evil as they possibly can. <laughs> Expedience is what they're all about. There's a reason for that. Because their laws told them that they could not kill someone on the Sabbath. Which means if they don't arrest them at night in the dark, if they don't begin the trial in the dark, they're going to have to wait a whole weekend <laughs> before they get to kill Jesus. And they want to do it now. They don't want to wait. They want this done. So their law told them that they couldn't kill someone on the Sabbath. Their law also told them that they could only try someone between sunrise and sunset on a day. But they ignored that one. Why? Expedience. It's striking to me that they're allowed to sacrifice or to, to kill someone on a high holy day, right? This is Passover. So they're allowed to kill someone on the high holy day, but they're not allowed to kill somebody on the Sabbath. And as I think about this, I just got to tell you, as a, as a leader in a church, it is stunning to me to think that their one priority on the biggest holy day of the year is killing someone. These men, you know what they should be doing? They should be leading the entire nation in worship. They should be, with every moment here, be fasting and praying and preaching and leading. And what do they do? They're hiding in the dark, trying the king of the universe. Because they've got to get it done now. They don't have any time to wait. Again, we look at their evil actions and we look at the good God is doing, right? They think they're in control here. We're going to make this happen. We're going to get it done on Passover. What is God saying? That's right. You're going to get this done on Passover because that right there, that's my new Passover lamb. God not only takes their evil acts and turns it good, he takes their evil timing and makes it beautiful so that forever there would never need to be another Passover lamb. Because Jesus' blood is enough for all of us, for the, the angel of death to pass over us. That's the whole imagery there. God takes their evil actions, makes them good. He takes their evil timing, and he makes it good. He makes it better. Their goal is death, and they're aimed for that. But they're not in control but they are guilty. 
This is the most unjust court case in the history of the world. There has never been another uh, more unjust court case. For anybody who has faced the wrong side of justice, when justice has gone wrong, this should bring incredible hope. For anybody who has been unjust, this should bring incredible terror because we, in doing so, participate in the unjust actions that would condemn even our Savior. In this case, there is an innocent man who was accused, charged, and sentenced to death and executed on the same day. Just think about that for a minute. Arrested, accused, tried, convicted, sentenced, and executed in a day. I mean, whether you agree with the death penalty in America or not in, in various states that still have it, you imagine, I mean, none of us would stand for that. Even if you think the death penalty is a great option. Like, well, you know, maybe we should take two days for that. This is actually why this is so bad here, because Jewish law required that it took two days or more. Jewish law required that if you were charged and went through trial and been found convicted, it was required that every single person who was involved in the court case spend the night awake thinking about it for the next day to decide whether or not there was any way to let this person off the hook. The Jewish court system was the most pro-life institution that has ever existed in the history of the world. The rules that governed the court system were designed so that even if someone was guilty, but there was a shadow that they might be innocent, that they would be let off. Because it was built on the idea that people are made in the image of God and that he has knit every single one of us together in the womb. That he has built us piece by piece. And here is those who would just throw all of that out and in a single day try the most innocent man that has ever lived, convict him, sentence him, and execute him in a single day. We may often think when we read the Old Testament, wow, there are a lot of ways people could die. Like, there's a lot of rules in the Old Testament when you read and you're like, oh, you do that and you get killed. Right? Have you ever read the Old Testament and you're thinking, wow. I mean, I wouldn't be here today. I know that. Right? Most of us would probably say that. If you've ever read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, you, you've come across rules where there was a rule that said, if you do this, then you should be killed. And we think, wow, man, they were really harsh. Yes and no. The reality is that there are very few cases, whether we read about in history or that actually happened, where people were actually put to death for those things. Why? Because the court system had some of the most crazy rules about how to convict someone in order to put them to death. The first thing, is that judges were not allowed to be involved. If a judge knew a person, if they interacted, if they could benefit possibly in any way, shape, or form from the outcome of this situation, they were to recuse themselves. Now apply that to what's going on with Jesus right now, and you think, wow, 
Here's a whole group of people. Every single one of them has something to benefit. Right there, and he told us in John 11 that if they don't kill Jesus, they're going to lose all their power, all their positions. Rome is going to come in and destroy them. So here you've got a bunch of judges who are just absolutely going to benefit from what's going on in this court case. Every one of them should have recused themselves. Witnesses. Witnesses. We're not like witnesses today, right? If you look at a court case today, whether any of the, the big ones that we've seen lately, what happens is, is, is a lawyer, a prosecutor, um, gets a bunch of witnesses together, and together they paint the picture for a narrative that comes up. And usually the defense tries to do the same in the opposite direction. So when the Bible tells us that, that there needed to be at least two witnesses to a crime, we think, well, yeah, I mean, there's usually like two witnesses to a crime. You, this one knows this piece, and this one knows this piece, this one knows this piece. But Jewish law required that every witness know every single bit of the story and had seen it themselves. Just pause on that for a second. Nobody could be condemned to death in the nation of Israel if there weren't two people who saw the whole thing happen. Just pause on that. How many crimes are committed where there were two people to see it? From beginning to end. The next thing to know is that witnesses were the, accu the accusers. They were the ones that would have had to bring the charges forward. And if you brought charges forward as a witness and were be proven to be a liar, you know what happened to you? The offense that the other person would have been committed of their conviction becomes yours if they're found innocent. So you come forward and you say, I saw this person murder someone. Somebody else comes forward and says, no, that person didn't murder that person. We saw it. And there's two witnesses to that and says, no, we saw this. Or we know that you couldn't have seen this and you're lying about it. Guess what? That person's now on the chopping block for perjury. Again, here's... One of the craziest rules. This was required in Jewish law for someone to be found guilty and convicted and executed. That the witnesses who are bringing the accused forward have to have told the accused before they committed the crime that what they were doing was going to get them killed. Just pause on that for a minute. This is Jewish law. This is the law these men are supposed to be upholding. They need to go to someone and say, hey, look, if you keep saying what you're saying, you're going to be tried and convicted and killed. If you swing that sword at that guy and kill him, you're going to be convicted as a murderer and you're going to be put to death. One of the things that that did was completely eliminate anybody arguing they didn't know the law. Ignorance of the law is not permission to do it. Now let me just ask you, of, of, of what you know about the trial, we're going to be studying this over the next few weeks, are any of those, those circumstances met in this trial? Not a one. Not a one. Like I've already said, the trial itself was supposed to take place in, in the daylight during the day, and any, any sentencing and execution of that sentencing was supposed to happen down the road. James Montgomery Boyce quotes, from the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral tradition that these men were committed to following. 
And he says this. This is what it says in the Mishnah. This is what they're supposed to follow. It says, The Sanhedrin, which so often is once in seven years, condemns a man to death, is a slaughterhouse. Man, we read the Old Testament and we think, wow, man, they were just killing people all over the place for religious law. But the the, the, the oral tradition, the Mishnah tells them that if you, as a Sanhedrin, commit one person to death every seven years, you're a slaughterhouse. And people should think of that Sanhedrin as a slaughterhouse. This is the most pro-life institution that has ever existed and they're the ones that took the lord of life and hung him on a tree what does that say about sinful man what does that say about those who would betray jesus they have every excuse to do everything right and they do nothing right they do nothing right but church remember who's in charge here God takes their evil and he does something good. Because it is better that one man should die than that everyone should perish. God takes that which we mean for evil and turns it into good. How many of us, when we think about the stories of our lives, the testimonies, the things that we have lived through, the things that we have done to ourselves, our families, to others, how many of those stories are is it those very things that God uses later in our lives as we're Christians to bless and to lead other people to the Lord, to share about the trouble that we were so that others might hear what God could do in their lives? It's the very acts of evil that we commit that God uses to become proclamations of the gospel to other people. This is the Lord that we serve. We may be people who have done tremendous evil in our lives. We may even still be today doing tremendous evil in our lives. We may be people who betray Christ at every moment. We may be people who hurt our family and our friends and our community at every moment. We may be people who are constantly hurting ourselves. And you look at this kangaroo court, this trial if you can even call it that and john makes the point really really well they think they're in control they think that what they're doing is what they're going to keep doing and what is going to be the good thing to do and god says no i've got something better so what do we do with this first let's think about our response let's think about our response Church, I just have to tell you, when I think about what God is doing in this situation, when he's taking what is really perceivable, and I think absolutely true that it is the most evil thing that has ever happened in the course of human history, and he's making it good, all I want to do is praise the Lord. All I want to do is lift up my voice in song, is lift up my voice in prayer, and, and just proclaim how awesome he is. How good is our God that he takes the worst of this world and says, yeah, you're doing your thing, but I'm going to do something better. He doesn't leave it alone. I think our first response needs to be praise and prayer. I think we need to come before the Lord. We need to sing. We need to pray, proclaim who he is. We need to preach that to anybody who will listen. 
Second, what do we do? We turn to the one who gave us his life. I said earlier that, that it's terrible when, when you say, all right, we're going to kill someone for the better of others, but it's a beautiful thing when someone says, I'm going to give my life for others. And Christians, we know that's the call on every single one of our lives. We see about all through the Gospels. Jesus says it, right? He says that the thing we should all be doing is giving up our lives for our friends, for our neighbors. For some of us, that may mean literally giving up our physical life. There may be that opportunity. And the question is, if we have that opportunity, will we jump at it? Will we dive in front of the bullet? Will we rescue that kid who's about to get hit by a car only to get hit by the car ourselves? Will we speak to someone who we know is in sin and falling into the trap of hell, even though we may lose that friendship? Will we proclaim the gospel even though we may get laughed at? Are we willing to lay down what we have, what we want to be, who we are for the sake of someone else? We turn to the one who gave his life, and we give our life to Jesus doesn't just call us to turn to him in salvation. What does he do? He calls us to make him our Lord, the one in charge. So what do we do? We praise him and we give our lives to him and to those around us.